0: I was always like mesmerized about the drummer and just wanted to be there and sit behind that drum. So drums was something that I always uh, were thinking about even when I was a little kid.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of the Assyrian Podcast for the year 2021. My name is Rhoda, and I'm so thrilled to bring you episode 161 with a guest who is very well known in the world of Persian pop music as well as Assyrian music. Robert Nokli was born in 1951 in Iran prior to the Islamic Revolution. His love for music started at a young age and he eventually became a really well-known drummer and began playing with the giants of Persian pop music like Abiy Gugush and Daryush. After moving to the United States, he worked with various Assyrian singers too, like Linda George, Walter Aziz, Shamiram Orshan, and Ogin Bet-Samu, to name a few. He recorded some of their most legendary albums in the 1980s in Chicago. A.M.B. Sat produced an excellent documentary about Robert's life that we'll link in the show notes. What I found most fascinating about it is the way some of the most prominent figures in Assyrian and Persian music discuss the impact of Robert's craft, artistry, and leadership on the industry. He might be too humble to talk about his own impact on Assyrian and Persian music in that way, but he is a legend in his own right. He has played the drums on the recordings of almost a thousand songs, and he has played numerous live shows with various singers. I really enjoyed talking to Robert and learning more about his life and perspective on music, and I think you will too. Before we get to this week's interview, I want to remind you to make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate, and review us wherever you listen to us. Also, if there are people you'd like for us to consider for the upcoming 2022 season, please check out the nominating form on our website. This episode is sponsored by the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Oshana's at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theoshanapartners.com. And now, here's this week's guest, Robert Nopley.
2: Robert, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast.
0: Hello, Lola. How are you?
2: I'm good. It's good to be with you today.
0: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
2: I want to start off by asking you about your first uh, music-related memory before you even started playing in any instruments.
0: Oh, if you want to go that far back. I remember <laughs> when I was a little kid, My mom used to. T- my mom used to tell me that that I would go and to the kitchen and would take all the pots and pans out and find some, you know, tiny sticks and start making noise on them, just banging on them. And she would get upset and kick me out of the kitchen and stuff like that. But then just growing up in the, in my family, there was always music been played, whether, uh, my parents or my older brothers, I had three older brothers and they were all playing rock and roll and my parents would, my mom would play like uh, German or Russian kind of music. My dad used to love Turkish music uh, from Turkey. And so there was always these musical songs that these songs that have uh, been played around the house. And me just growing up, just hearing all those different genres, you know, from rock and roll to balls to, you know, all kinds of different music that was played. And that was really that helped me a lot as far as getting familiar with different genres of music until so i I was able to start putting my hands on a on an organ at home, we had a church organ at home that my mom had, and uh, I started like fooling around on that, tried to learn the chords and got myself a method book and started playing the keyboards so I can understand i was I knew I had to have something to do with music, but I wasn't sure you know what instruments and what were just fooling around with that keyboard or that organ. Helped me, helped me a lot. Did your then, mom
2: buy that organ in hopes that you or your brother would learn how to play?
0: No, she bought it for herself, for herself to learn how to play.
2: <laughs> did she Did she know how to play it?
0: No, but she just loved it. She just loved having it and she would sit on it and just, you know, just move her fingers up and down just create some noise and notes and she would be smiling. But it was there, and I had to, you know, use it. It was an instrument, so that was a good start for me.
2: I'm also curious about the role of this global music in your home. How do you think growing up with um, all the different types of musics that your uh, brothers and your parents listen to help make you, at the end, a more well-rounded artist?
0: Absolutely, exactly what you said, and as I mentioned before, it really helped me with. Growing up, you know, getting more involved in different kind of music from R&D to jazz and other things. And then and and even playing music uh, with the band, you know, in the band with other friends of mine, musicians, just knowing, just being familiar with those chord progressions of different kind of genres. It really helped me with my music. And later on, when I started reading music uh, and, and, you know, listening and analyzing. So all that stuff was really helpful to me growing
2: up you said you taught yourself how to play the um, keyboard on your mom's organ. Do you remember the first song you learned how to play from start to finish?
0: I uh, never learned any song to play, to be honest with you. What I learned was the chords so I can accompany somebody else. I didn't want to, I didn't know if I could be that good in order to you know play melody with my right hand and chords with my left hand. It was just there, and I wanted just to understand the chord progressions and harmonies and stuff like that. So that's all I was concentrating on, just to play chords on the keyboard. And even when I went started going doing gigs, uh, playing the, uh, the the keyboards, the organ, I was just playing a company chords uh, with some other people that were either singing or there were, we had a solo guitar player that he would do the solos and stuff. I was just a company player, just playing the chords never really played any melodies or anything.
2: That's so interesting to me because I feel like when I think about learning how to play an instrument, like a few years ago, I decided I wanted to teach myself how to play the guitar. And so what I was focusing on was like, what song am I gonna learn? And I, I recognize that that's because I didn't have a basis in like understanding how playing music works so as a listener um what brings me joy is the whole song right whereas to me it sounds like you understood from a young age what it meant to be a part of an entire production and you learned that like the part that you could play is like playing the chords so that's super interesting to me you you said you joined a band at some point this was an, an, a, a band with your Assyrian friends right
0: well, at the beginning, when I was playing the the the, the, the keyboards, uh, I'd started going to a couple of gigs. Uh, I was probably good enough just to be on small parties here and there, just to accompany some other guy, maybe two other guys, and just continued like that. But slowly, slowly, I was able to like you know save money doing playing keyboards, saving money so I can buy my first drum set. And when I bought my drum set. Afterwards, uh, I started my first band with my, some of my friends uh, from the high school when I was like 19 years old.
2: So you knew that at some point you wanted to get to playing the drums. What is it about playing drums that spoke to you in that way?
0: I'm not really sure, but uh, in the 60s, uh, late 60s, 69 or 70s, in Iran, uh, when we used to go to movie theaters and stuff, there was always like newsreel at the beginning, mostly black and white. Uh, this was like, you know, again, 69 or 70, those years. And there was always like newsreels, short news newsreels about uh, coming from England or Europe, uh, from English bands, you know, British Invasion at the time, Beatles, Rolling Stones, and, and groups like that. And I would just look at them, and I, I was always like mesmerized about the drummer and just wanted to be there and sit behind that drum. So drums was something that I always uh, were thinking about even when I was a little kid. But when you don't have it in front of you and there's another instrument, uh, I felt like I have to learn an instrument no matter what it is so I can you know, start this journey and then eventually I'll end up uh, with my drums. So that's how it was.
2: I've heard you say in different interviews that you had a lot of teachers and no teachers at all. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that, because I find that to be such a fascinating way of describing your learning experience with music.
0: In Iran, when I was growing up, there was really no music school per se for electronic instruments. In other words, there was nobody there that would play electric guitar and would teach or play the drums I would teach. So... There were a couple of very famous uh, drummers uh, at the time. That one was working in a radio uh, radio orchestra, uh, uh, and the other one was uh, working. uh, He was uh, playing in a uh, another band, which was like a symphony, radio symphony orchestra of Iran. And these guys were like basically classical players. In other words, they mostly would play the snare drum. There would be like pieces for snare or. uh, or for timpani and stuff like that. So they were not really pop drummers per se. And so there was really nobody, no school that I could go and learn. So my school was radio, I had a little transistor radio that always had it on, you know, on my ear, going walking to school or walking back home, or even sometimes in the class I used to turn it on and listen just to this uh, American station back home, which was uh, for set up for uh, American officers that, that were in Iran. So they had a station, American station that would play American music, rock and roll, 60s rock and roll, you know, broadcasting from US. And so I would listen to that and continuously. And a couple of times I even were thrown out of the class because of that, because of my my radio was loud and the teacher can hear it, stuff like that. But then I had to start. I, I also watched another group uh, on television when I was like, I think 17 or 18, and it was called The Wonders. In Farsi, they would call themselves Ojubaha. And when I saw these people on television, I was just mesmerized, and I looked at the drummer, I said, and he was an Armenian guy that I've seen him here and there. I was younger than them, of course. Uh, But I saw him and I said, if this guy can do it, I can do it. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that was it. I had enough money to get myself a drum set. Of course, my dad wasn't very happy about it, but uh, started learning on my own. Start like playing on it and and kind of asking this guy, asking that guy, looking, watching other people that slowly, slowly were coming into scene. Uh, you know, other drummers uh, in Iran, a couple of Armenian drummers, very good drummers. And I used to go to the club and just sit, just sit next to the stage, just watch him, just watch the movements, their hands, the hearing, listening to the uh, tuning of the drums, and just kind of trying to memorize everything and and go home and maybe apply it to my drums or try to imitate what I've seen or what I heard. So slowly, slowly, a little bit like this, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, I learned about, uh, you know, basic fundamental of of playing the drums. But uh, when I was uh, about 21 years old, 20 years old like that, I had a uh, a gentleman who I met, uh, his name was Andronique, he was a very famous songwriter and arranger. And I met him in one of these gigs. And uh, of course I didn't know him. He came over and said, he said, he told me that I was a decent player. And he asked me if I read music because he wanted to use me in his recording studio. And I said, no, unfortunately I don't read music. And he said, he gave me his address. He said, just come to my house next week. So that was it. For the next three months, I went to his house and he taught me how to read music. I did my, uh, Uh, session, did a session with him uh, in studio, like a demo, and kind of he was happy about it. And then from there, every time he had a session to record a song, he would call me and then other people heard me and they started calling me. So slowly, slowly, I I kind of took me away from the live playing into more and more and more into the studio recording sessions.
2: Is that how you got introduced to um, some of the bigger singers um, in Iran at the time?
0: Yes, I was introduced to to bigger musicians. Uh, I, I was always lucky and and the reason was that I always ended up with working with musicians that were older than I am and were they were much better than I am. So I I was constantly learning from them. And through them I got to know, you know, some major artists in Iran and, and doing their recordings and slowly, slowly get to know them. And then starts working with them on, on a live concerts and stuff like that.
2: You were obviously born in Iran. You went to school there. You grew up during a time when live music um, in Iran and pop music and not just music and Farsi, but also like you've talked about rock and roll and like the influences of that people of my generation, whether born here or in the United uh, or in Iran, may not associate that kind of uh, music scene with the Iran we know now, which has like restrictive rules and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about what Iran was like when you were growing up and um, what your experience was with the music scene there?
0: At the time before the revolution, uh, as far as uh, music scene was concerned, there was, uh, it was, you know, tremendous amount of possibilities and, and opportunities for everyone. Because what happened was in the late 60s, the, the traditional uh, Iranian music kind of started to transform to pop, kind of pop music. So more more and more people started listening to singers that would do pop music rather than, you know, traditional kind of music. And because of that, because the pop music started to get... A little more popular in Iran in the early 70s. So, a lot of these major singers that wanted to do pop music, but there were were not enough uh, musicians available because most of the musicians, like myself, we were working in the clubs. We never, you know, we didn't even think about playing with singers or doing concerts with Zamara artists at Khamlian. We just, you know, doing our own, you know, having our own band working in the clubs here and there or weddings or parties and here and there but then when this revolution started and pop music started becoming a little more popular and major stars like like harry like gurush like Darius, and those guys started doing songs and singing so that because of that genre they started to hiring us musicians from those bands to come and play with them because they needed musicians that were more into pop music, more we're in, we're into pop and uh, R&B and, and, and familiar with those kind of music that they can bring those influence into Persian music and influence those songs that were recorded in the, in the 70s, uh, 1970s area.
2: Um, one of my um, fellow co-hosts loves Persian music from the 70s. Um, he thinks that the, the attention to detail and the live instruments and the arrangements are something so special. I'm curious if um, there is something about Persian music from that era that speaks to you differently than the music we are hearing now.
0: Absolutely. One word is freedom. At the time, those days, all of our songwriters, arrangers, uh, even artists themselves, Amal, sure and they all wanted different things. In other words, when when an when album would come out from Gugush, for example, she would have eight or ten different songs, different kind of beats. One would be a ballad, the other one would be a samba, the other one would be a basanova, the other one would be a, a dance song. So sort of like a mixture of everything, and and people like. Arrangers and songwriters were free to write and arrange any way they like, because everything was new and everybody was open-minded. And so us, as far as us musicians, we also brought a whole bunch of stuff that we learned in other kind of music and mixed it in in, in the Persian music at the time of the recordings. In other words, when we used to go to recordings, the arranger would come and bring us a a, a structured chart of a song. We put it in front of everybody, you know guitar, piano bass, and stuff. and then we were all, play what we learned out, you know, outside that studio environment, what we learned listening and playing R&Ds and jazz and stuff like that, would bring all those influence into those songs, into the studio, and to perform. That's why there was a huge freedom about what to do and how to play and what to play. And nobody would tell you, as long as it would make sense what you play with the song, nobody would stop you. Nobody would say, oh, no, this is not good. Of course, people had opinions. Producers had their own opinions. But most of the time, you were able to convince them that this is a good beat for this song. And they would, go, they would go for it. So the freedom was the main thing. But after the revolution, what I noticed when Iranians mostly came to U.S., uh, entertainers as well, after the like first few years, things started kind of changing. One, one, uh, a dance music started to become very popular, and so everybody was doing the dance music. And a little bit of, uh, you know, copying. One, one Let's say one artist would come, with, come up with a song. The song would become a hit. And then everybody would start writing similar songs to that because that song was hit. But that situation was not like that in Iran. It was everybody was on their own doing different things and fantastic things, I should, you know, add. But that was not what happened in the U.S.
2: I'm curious what it was like for you at the time to work with, um, I know they weren't born giants of the Iranian music, but at some point they became uh, just legends and what it was like for you to work with those artists. I know that you have a really strong relationship with Ebi. What was it like meeting him and working with him?
0: With Ebi was an exception because I've known him uh, for 47 years and uh, did a Uh, recording for him in Iran, it's called SHAP. And that's how we started our friendship. And then I did uh, lots of other recordings for him in Iran, but we never really worked together until we came to U.S. And around 1990, around 1984 and 85, for two years we we played in this club together. And then after that, when he came back from Sweden, we formed a band and from there on, 20, last 26, seven years I've been playing with him. But other singers, uh, I I met most of our artists, the uh, Iranian artists, in the studio, uh, in that in that format, uh, because we would do their songs and they would come and listen to see if it was, uh, you know, to them if it was sometimes it was too fast or too slow, and so they would ask us to do it again or if, if it was okay then they would send us home. But I met most of these, uh, uh, as you said, giant artists later on in the studio environment and. From there on, they all liked my playing, or most of them liked my playing, and they wanted me to perform on the albums uh, or the songs. So that's how I got to know them. And from there on, just our relationship, still friends with uh, 99% of them, and still in communication with them.
2: What was, you mentioned earlier that your dad wasn't very happy when you decided that you wanted to make music um, your career. What? How did his reaction change when he saw you succeeding in that manner and working with so many amazing
0: artists? Yeah, my dad was not very happy. The reason was that he wanted me to stay in school and, and you know, finish school, of course, you know, continue to college and all that. And I wasn't. I My whole uh thoughts, my heart, my everything, my concentration, my focus is all on music. I wasn't thinking about nothing else but music, uh, especially school. I didn't like school as much. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh but he wasn't happy and that's this is what happened when I uh transitioned from playing the keyboards at home and that organ to purchasing the drums and, and now all of a sudden I'm playing drums at home and of course I was covered with with my laptop, you know, towels and stuff like that, so you can reduce the noise. But my dad was not happy. he would always say, you know, neighbors are complaining and stuff like that. So at some point he kind of told me, you know what, you either, if you stay home and continue to your college and education, I will support you. But if this is what you wanna do, you can't stay in my house, you gotta go and be on your own. Which I did, I was about 18 years old. I took off, uh, went and lived by myself in a room somewhere. <laughs> and uh, started playing in this uh, nightclub got myself a job and uh, oh before i did that before i did that i went and uh since i got my diploma i was 18 i went and uh, told myself okay let me go and do my two years of uh, service you know in iran every person you either have to continue your education or you have to go do two years of voluntary service in army so i said to myself okay let me go and do those two years get you know get it out of the way so i can continue my career and i went when i went and applied for that because i was wearing glasses they gave me a off they said you know we don't need to Here's the paper go you're on your own you don't have to do the two years and at that point i was like 18 years old didn't have to go to you know service so i started working in a nightclub and little by little got to know other musicians better musicians stopped doing the weddings and stuff, got to do other things, other better better things. And then after maybe like it was it was the third year, maybe nineteen seventy two or so, I was playing in this uh big orchestra on television for this very big variety show that was uh on in Iran on Friday nights, I believe. And it had a big orchestra you play live and this was the first time that was happening. And I was part of that orchestra and according to my mom my dad sees that and then he gets kind of excited or uh, and he tells my mom you know tell him tell him to come home i want to see him and stuff like that so of course i used to go and see my mom but i just didn't see my dad and so my mom let me know hey your dad wants to see you so after about three years that he was totally against me and not wanting me to play music and all that uh, i went home and he told me you know I didn't realize that you wanted to you wanted this so much and and you were not I just was was not sure if you were wasting your time. I didn't want that I want you to be educated, but if that's what you want to do, then you know you have my blessing. and that was it. From there on, I had every every support that I could have from my family.
2: Well, it sounds like he just wanted you to be successful at whatever you were doing. Uh, and once he saw evidence for that. He was behind you.
0: It seems like it, but took about three for three, four years.
2: At some point, um, you and your family moved um, to the United States. Did you move before the revolution, the Iranian? Yes,
0: revolution? We yes, we did. Our uh, decision was a family decision. My parents came to US. I think nineteen seventy six or so, and they really liked it. My mom had a relative living in the US, and so my dad. Gather all of us. There were five brothers, and a couple of them had wives and stuff. So gather all of us, and he said, "You know, how? What do you guys think about moving to U.S.? Uh, you know, it's a Christian country, and you are Christians, and blah blah blah." So that was the, like a like a family decision, and we all decided to do this. Of course, it took us about eight months, all of us. You know, group by group, we used to come, and this was all before the revolution uh, in the 1978. And when we came to U.S., about Nine months, 10 months later, all of a sudden, we saw the revolution happening in Iran, uh, which we couldn't believe our eyes, but we had no idea.
2: Wow, so it seemed like you left at a good time.
0: Yes, but a year later, all the artists that I was uh, working with in Iran, uh, one by one, they started coming to Los Angeles to California.
2: Right, of course, because they were banned, right? Um, After the
0: revolution. Right.
2: And did you and your family settle in Turlock when you first came here?
0: My parents settled in Turlock at the beginning. They came first. They came and settled down, so they can, so we can all one by one come. And then I actually settled in, in Turlock as well. At the time, um, um, the way that immigration was, that you had to like invest forty thousand dollars in order to get yourself a green card. And so I did that. I. I started uh, i opened a record shop in turlock it was called potato records
2: where was it located
0: um, it was on central uh central avenue i think near downtown
2: yeah that's uh, downtown turlock
0: yeah it was in this (laughs) shopping center that my dad used to own it so i started the store there and i was there about maybe two years i got my green card and all that and then uh I had a friend in Los Angeles who owned a, a club, a nightclub. And so he sent me a message saying that if you're ready, come to LA, I have a job for you. And that's what happened. I came, moved from Turlock to LA and I stayed for the last 30 some years.
2: Um, I Turlock is my old hometown. My family and I also settled in Turlock when we first got here. Um, so when I heard that you had a record store in Turlock, I was really curious what street it was on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so you come to the, uh, U S you open that record shop and then you move to LA and reconnect at some point after all the artists, um, have left Iran, um, after the revolution with them and you start working with them again, but at some point you make the transition Um, from being just a a drummer in a band to being a band leader. Um, Talk to me about how that transition occurred because every band has a drummer, but not every drummer is the band leader, right?
0: That's true. Uh, Historically, uh, piano players or keyboard players are band leaders. But uh, I'm not sure why. I mean, a band leader's job is to lead the band, take care of the band, uh, take care of the band's affairs. And that's what I do. Um, the way that happened was I was working uh, with Ebi in a, a club called uh, 1244. This was like 1986, 87, I believe. And um, we were working in the club and then Abby disappeared. He decided that he doesn't want to do nightclub jobs. He wanted to become a major star. So he disappeared. He left he went to Sweden for a year and came back with a with a great album. This album became very, you know, popular. And so he decided to form a band. He asked, he talked to me, called me, talked to me, and told me that he wanted to put a band together and do tours. He doesn't want to do clubs or parties and stuff like that. And so since that time, uh, since I formed that first band for him in 1996, I've been with him uh, since then and. Taking care of his band, responsibility of the band, you know, traveling, the uh, transportation, everything. Everything that has to do with the band, I'll take care of it. But we have a musical director who does the musical part of the band, and we also have a manager, band manager, we also have a roadie. So, but my responsibility is just for the band members and their needs. and
2: B Sat did this excellent documentary about your work, and they interviewed A lot of artists that you've had the opportunity to work with or they've had the opportunity to work with you and listening to them talk about you one of the things that stood out to me was that they not only appreciate your talent as an excellent drummer but all the ways in which you contribute to the team effort of producing a song or playing a song and how you make the other make sure that the other musicians and artists are good at what they're doing um i'm curious about how you developed that style of leadership and why that is important to you
0: that is a good question of how i'm not sure how it's just i guess they're just doing it just taking care of something if you have a responsibility you take care of it then you know, years go by, you become good at it. And I think that just started like that and, you know, put a band together and then started, started taking care of the band's affair. And slowly, slowly, it became a, a responsibility and it became a, a major responsibility because in the Ebby's environment, working environment uh, with his productions, everybody has to do the job to the, you know, top of the level uh, of capability. So, um, it was like that. And then became, uh, I just loved it. And from there on, uh, you know, wanted the responsibility and just having it. But I'm not sure how I, uh, how it came about, it just starting doing it. And then and I liked doing it. I'm a very organized person. I try to. So I, I like being organized. So probably the only way that I could keep everything organized was to handle it myself and not leave it to anybody else. Maybe that's what uh, how it started.
2: Well, it sounds like it maybe also just comes naturally to you. (laughs) Could be, could be. You You said that when you first started, you didn't know how to uh, read notes and you taught yourself how to play by ear, essentially. Do you ever play with any uh, band members who only know how to play music by ear? Um, And how does that impact um, the experience of that person or the band as a whole?
0: Well, every musician almost can play with ears. I mean, every musician can play with what he understands and what he can hear. But reading the charts is only like a tool for you to be able to, you know, uh, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like cooperating with the rest of the musicians, the rest of the instruments up there. So the charts is like something that uh, connects everybody together. We all follow the same thing. That's the only reason that charts and, and notes exist, just so I have some kind of coherence. But a lot of times we have gone on stage and everybody knew a certain song and we just played it without uh, charts or anything. Everybody knew the song and we just played it, just like you said. So uh, reading music is really uh, like a tool, additional tool to get better. Of course, last uh, 10, 20, 25 years, i worked with... Uh, in Abby's band, we always like hired uh, top-notch musicians that are always music. So our musical director always have charts for new songs and stuff like that. So we have to rehearse those. Charts are just a tool for a musician to to uh, have some kind of structure or some kind of roadmap to know where the song goes from the beginning to the end.
2: I'm also wondering about your experience in both playing live music um, versus uh, playing music when you are recording a song. Um, What is the biggest difference between playing the drums in a live setting versus um, a recording session?
0: Well, let me start by saying that I prefer studio work than live playing. Let me get that out of the way. I prefer studio work than than playing live, but I I have to play live because that's how you make a living. Studio doesn't pay as much. Um, but the difference, one of the difference, is that when you do, when you play in a the, in the studio environment, there's a song that you're trying to record, and you have to play it as many times as you have to in order to get it all right. Everybody has to play it several times in order to get the recording right. So one song, you maybe go to the studio and play it two, three times, and we get it and we record it, we're done. A song maybe takes a whole day to get it right. Difficult song, difficult arrangement stuff. But the live, it's you play it and right there, that song is finished. It's done. Whether you make a mistake or how whatever happens on stage on that particular song, it's done. It's gone to the air and it's finished. But in the studio environment, you have a chance to go back and correct yourself. Which in the live setting you don't have that chance. So you have better you set it made... correct the first time.
2: <laughs> have you ever made mistakes during a live session?
0: Oh, Oh, tons, tons. <laughs> How
2: do you recover? You
0: know, every, everybody makes mistakes. Uh, and it's not because of uh, not lack of knowledge or anything. It's just sometimes it's a mood that you're in. Sometimes uh, the other musicians, maybe you don't click with them. Sometimes uh, the the artist is in front of you singing, not doing the right job. There are all kinds of things that could distract you. And for a second, you could maybe miss a, a beat or or a note or or an accent, and this and that—that that happens. That happens.
2: Well, if I could propose a theory, um, as an an artist and a creative person, it sounds to me like you might be a bit of a perfectionist. So you want to get things right, and so recording in the studio is more appealing to you because you can play until it sounds perfect um, than yes. live music. <laughs>
0: Yes, yes. That could be it. You <laughs> <She> nailed it.
2: <laughs> Are there things that you enjoy about playing live events?
0: I used to. I used to, but not anymore. Uh, uh, one reason I'm kind of older and the body is not the body of 20 years ago. Uh, slower. I can not do some of the techniques that I used to be able to play. So it it's kind of affect your playing. and uh, again, live requires lots of energy, lots of uh, you know, but uh, but I am uh, again, trying to stay away as much as possible or slowly, slowly stay away from the live playing uh, and just stick to any recordings if there's any anything
2: fair enough. When we spoke a few weeks ago, you said to me, I consider myself like i I enjoy um recording uh, music and, and all of that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, in that A&B documentary that I was watching, something else that stood out to me is that there was an Iranian music historian. And one of the things he said about you is that one thing that contributed to your flair as a drummer, um, for these big Iranian singers, something that you brought to the table that maybe others didn't is your knowledge of Assyrian folkloric rhythms. Um, so I'm curious how you think being familiar with uh, Assyrian music uh, helped to shape your style.
0: Something I always try to do, just to keep in mind that I, at the, at the same time that I was uh, playing uh, Persian music with some Persian artists or recordings I here there, I was also on and off, involved with Assyrian, uh, uh, some Assyrian programs and shows in, in Assyrian club or Shota Puta, uh, with Puta, maybe, I can give an example. So I was back and forth, very little activities, but I had some activities with Assyrian artists. But in the meantime, I was uh, getting, uh, analyzing a lot of Assyrian beats and stuff, trying to uh, uh, mix them or bring them into some of the recordings that I was doing for Persian artists and stuff. And uh, a lot of that uh, was very uh, low key. I wouldn't tell them that, oh, this is, a, this, is this and that. I would just play that Assyrian beat that I know, for example, Sheikhani in, in a particular song. And they would say, oh, this is nice. You know, what is this? I would say, oh, this is like an Assyrian folk beat. So we use it, and, I, and they would like it. For example, Ebi uh, has a song called Shekar. By and when we were recording it, I played the sheyhani it on on the on my toms, and the producer told me that he liked it, and let's keep this he he had some other the things in mind, and so we played that in that way and years later, I hear that some of the popularity of that song was because of the way that the beat was playing and uh, it was kind of new for people at the time or 47 years ago. And so it was new. And so every time I had a chance in any kind of recording, you know, for a Persian artist, I would bring a, a, an Assyrian beat. If I could fit it in the song, as long as it made sense, as long as it was musical, I used it. Uh, whether it was like Tualama's kind of beat or anything that I could use, so primarily, I try to, you know, mix those in, in Persian recordings that I did. So sometimes you can hear it. You have to kind of be familiar.
2: I'm going to have to go back and listen to that song and see if I can pick up on the Sheikh beat.
0: <laughs> sure.
2: Um, you mentioned that you did some work with some Assyrian artists. It looks to me like a lot of it was maybe in the 80s. You, you played... Um, You've, you've worked with um, Sergon and Walter and Shamidan and Linda. I'm curious about some of those albums. I would like to start asking about your work with uh, Shamidam. You uh, played with her on her '82 album. Is that correct? Yes, it is. How did you um, How did you get commissioned to do that work?
0: At the time, I was working in Chicago. I was uh, managing SY Recordings. It was a recording studio in Chicago owned by Sargon Yona, And uh, I was managing the studio for him. I moved to Chicago for that. And uh, so in that pro- uh, process of two and a half years that I was there, uh, we had some opportunities with some Assyrian singers who were living in Chicago or other places to do some albums. And Shamiram came about uh, in that time. And there was a young Guy by the name of William Mesan, who wrote a bunch of beautiful songs for her, and we used a couple of them in that album and uh she was a wonderful lady, fantastic singer. I don't know how of you know how much more I can talk to you about from she was she was an angel she was fantastic I got to know her and her family and um unfortunately couldn't do my best for her uh before she's her passing. I was planning on putting a concert for her with a big orchestra, symphony orchestra type thing, but we never had a chance. Lack of budgets and lack of interest and stuff like that.
2: She would have been a fantastic person to listen to. I, agree. I also think that the other album you may have worked on at that time was Ogan's uh Diar is it called I think it's called Diarta Al Watan. Um Luzia. There is a song on that album I wanna ask you about. It's called Sara I listened to it, I was listening to it yesterday, but the, the, I was hearing the words, but the thing that was coming to my head was my mom singing that same song to me, but the words were in Farsi. So I had to call her and say, mom, what is that song you used to sing? And she said, I'm pretty sure it was this folk song. When I looked it up, I think it's called Bandad, and Vigen sang it a long time ago.
0: I am so sorry, but I just can't remember that song. I oh can't even goodness. remember Ogre's song. I, I, I'm I, not good with names.
2: That's okay. The, names. Um, the words are...
0: Oh, I see, I see, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, actually, Surin wrote that song. Oh, do
2: yeah. you, you know anything more about
0: that? I know Suren wrote that song. And uh, I think maybe Ogin uh, translated it to Assyrian and sang it in Assyrian. But uh, yeah, it originally it was uh Surin's song I wrote for uh, Vigan. At the time, Surin uh, was very active with uh, major Persian stars, Vigen, Valambash, R.F. and used to play with them on their you know, shows and write songs for them. It's very active music.
2: It's like the perfect song to turn into an Assyrian song because it's such a good, uh, like Sheikhani beat. Yeah. Um, so when yeah. I, yeah. When I listened to the original, and I uh, like by Vigan and then I listened to Ogans, it was like the the perfect production for it to be a Sheikhani song.
0: <laughs> now, I could be wrong, but I think there's also a version available with Suhan himself. Played the violin. There's no no vocal, no singers on it, just the violin and the band. Of course, I played on that track, but I remember that track uh, with him, just him playing the violin. So there's a three versions of that.
2: Oh, I'll have to look that up too. Speaking of Sudan, can you tell us, um, Did you worked with him, right?
0: Uh, just a few, few songs and maybe a couple of nights here and there. But known him for all this time.
2: What kind of role do you think he has played um, or what kind of impact do you think he had on both Iranian music and just music in general?
0: When uh, Surin came around, at the time it was uh, pop music, uh, pop, Persian pop music was dominated by mostly Persians, obviously. And few Armenians, one like maybe a person like the Vigen, so people knew what Armenians are and, and this and that. But hardly anybody kind of would pay attention to Assyrians and musicians. Those words like did not go together unless Suren, until Suren came into the picture and started writing songs and playing violin and the, the way this the sweet way of playing that he he was doing. And all of a sudden, there were a lot of attractions towards him. And, and people like Vigan and other major artists tried to introduce him. And he brought, so people tried to get, uh, people started to get kind of curious, who is this guy? You know, where does he come from? Assyrian, Assyrian, Ashuri, Ashuri, Ashuri. So slowly, slowly, people got familiar with that. Oh, there's this guy that is Ashuri. So he was the first Assyrian artist or musician that opened the road, a to uh, to Persian pop music, uh, you know. In those those days, he opened the road, you know, for the national for people like me, uh, musicians like like me that could continue and 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 work in this vast market. But he was the first guy who, you know, started the whole thing for us.
2: There's also another song from the from that same era you worked with Walter Aziz on his 1982 "Agapotros" Potros album, is that right? Right. Um, there is, the song, like the title song, Aga Potros, is like nine minutes long and it's just a, a marching band, like, like it's a, a, some sound of march, right?
0: Bridge, right? Um,
2: right. Yes, yes. So it's like a very nationalistic song and then yeah. what stands out to me when I listen to it is is the beat of um, the drums in that song? Um, what was that process like, and what is it like to like sustain that kind of energy and beat for nine minutes straight?
0: Well, especially when you play a, a song for UNTA, then uh, you know you can't think about uh, being tired or, or none of that. You gotta be consistent. You gotta be on top of it because. You know, something about the recording is that once you go to the studio, do your work and come out and the album comes out, that's it. That album is going to stay around in the history. There's nothing you can do to go back and change anything. You know, there's none of that. So whatever is there, is there. And so
2: did you guys for, for that particular um song did you lay the drums and bass first and then came and then the rest came along or how did the process how did that process work out
0: uh, normally i remember uh miyapa uh, andranik who was a arranger and songwriter armenian gentleman so i introduced him to walter and he decided to do walter's album Arrange it and then um so that song was uh that album was arranged by Andreasatouyan and when he came to the to the studio and you we were trying to lay down the tracks, normally the way it is is that rhythm section lays down the, the rhythm section, the the tracks, like a drums, bass, piano, percussions, guitar, if, if if there's any bass guitar. So everybody lays down those tracks first and then they bring the other horn section or string sections or vocals or other overdubs that they need to do on top of that song. So we always did as a rhythm section. And in this case was myself, the bass player, and Mr. Andronic that did the rhythm section on all the songs.
2: Are there songs or experiences you can think of where you suggested a change at like the last minute in a recording and it actually worked out for the best?
0: Um, many times I suggested, like we would go to the studio and play a song, or or the producer would come and, and give us the charts, and we all look at it, and and he would give us, he would play the piano a little bit and give us an idea what the mood of the song is, for example, and then they would never write specifically for each instrument unless there was a, like an arpeggio on the guitar that has to keep a certain chord, and they would write that, but as far as the bass lines or drum patterns or even piano patterns, they wouldn't write those out because obviously at the time, those producers and arrangers, their knowledge of our instruments was not as much as ours. We, I knew more about my drums than the person that who, was, uh, who wrote the arrangement for a particular song. So he could only tell me how he wants a song sounds like or what kind of mood he's looking for. But then I was the one or each instrument. We have we were the one who had to come up with different patterns and play it for them and see which one they like, which one works better. So it was always like a you know give and take. But we mostly decided each of you know us musicians decided of what to play on each song. And sometimes they would suggest something. And uh, for example, there was a song. Uh, there's a lot of them, but I just remember guitar by Daruj. And they had a regular. Blues uh, beat for it uh, the producer had in mind and so he came to me said play it like that so we played it recorded it he was happy but I said to him you know can I try something different I just trust me for five minutes and he said okay of course he's, he was familiar with me and I wasn't going to waste his time so I went back to the studio by myself and they played the song again and I played a totally different pattern and with, with uh, brushes instead of stakes. And the song just totally came out a different way. And there were just, you know, gases of the result. So stuff like that happens, and that doesn't happen all the time, but certain ways, some certain times, you kind of get, certain things get uh, You know, thrown at you and say, Oh, let me try this or let me try that. And fortunately, I was working with a lot of people that are open minded and they would trust me. And if I say, You know, let me change the beat to this and that, they would let me do what I want. Some cases they didn't like it, (laughs) but most cases uh, it was working for the recording.
2: One of the things that I would love to talk to you about in terms of um, Assyrian music, and I'm asking you this because I think the breadth of your experience in the Iranian music scene and the work that you've done with Assyrian artists in the past. I'm curious what your take is on the current state of Assyrian music.
0: See, there's a there's a process for a musician and an artist. There's a process. We start with weddings, parties, picnics, playing your uh, friend's birthday party, just to gain experience, just to gain experience of how to deal with audience, how to sing, how to you know, deal with your band, what kind of set lists you should have. You gain all these experiences playing those you know, preliminary gigs or like weddings. Every musician that starts does weddings. Every singer that starts, they do weddings, they do parties, and this and that. And you go forward. You go forward and years go by and you do albums as an artist. You do, you do better albums, you do albums and albums, if you get to a point as an artist, as a singer, that somebody else, a producer comes and says, Mr. Organ, for example, I'm giving argument because he's my best friend. Mr. Organ, come and sing in our, you know, we have a concert set up for you, for example, uh, with the 30-piece band orchestra, and we'd like you to come and sing a couple of songs. So when you get to the point, to that point, like Organ who's capable of coming and singing in front of 30-piece orchestra and does a great job, a beautiful job, then that should be the threshold. From there, has to be, next gig has to be better, bigger, more production, better sound. Everything has to be better from that level on. You have to continue going up, 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 up. So, when you do that, when you sing in front of a symphony orchestra and, and perform so beautifully, again, I'm just Giving Ogan as an example, but I don't mean him. So you can't go back and, and three weeks later go to sing a, a in a of food festival. It just doesn't work together. It doesn't work like that. I mean, I still believe that those shows, those weddings, those parties should be for the musicians and Zamare or artists that coming along. The younger ones they should do those gigs. They should gain experience by doing those gigs, but our Major artists that I can count in one hand, those guys should keep our level high they should be they should be able to we should be able to have such artists that can do duets with other international artists you know to that level, and we can and we have, but their priorities are all mixed up in my opinion, and they don't make sacrifices they're all always thinking about short term you know uh, satisfaction, not in the long term and because of that, our music. It does not go forward as much as we like to and we always like back to the same place back to the same place that's what I wanted to say about you know our major artists and our youngers come in and and let them gain experience you already have those experiences do a better show don't just don't just go with uh, two three musicians on stage uh, if you're a major artist you have to respect yourself you know and and we have to, we, can, we should them more me more, more you know. So people, other cultures can listen to us and, and respect us for our music and stuff like that. But if we don't respect ourselves, we can't expect other people to respect us.
2: How much of that do you think is because so many of these singers, even to this day, years later after they've started, they're way of making a living is still the weddings and the parties.
0: I disagree. I have a, uh, you know, very, very good example. I can give you this example, which I give other people too. In, in 1986, as I said, we were working in this club with Eddie, and then he decided he doesn't want to do that. He was just just like a, another artist, a Syrian artist, an artist, was doing parties and clubs and stuff. He decided he doesn't want to do that. He went to Sweden. They disappeared for a whole year. Came up with a great album, and they came back to us and stopped doing parties. And he just, you know, formed a band and just did concerts. At the beginning, there were maybe 500 people. Maybe next uh, concert became 800, maybe 1,000, maybe 2,000. And in few years, we were able to play in the, in the auditoriums with 10,000 capacity, and it was full house. So. It takes a sacrifice. You have to sacrifice for your art. If you believe in yourself, you have to sacrifice. And don't look at short term. Don't look at oh, I'm going to do this gig and get this five thousand dollars until we see what happens. But it doesn't work like that. If you if you up to the point of a of a level of a greatness, then you got to stay there and go up even higher than that. Not go backwards.
2: Yeah, I was gonna ask you as a follow up. Like, do you think that sometimes artists get discouraged because if they do sing at a perform you know that they are performing with a band they tend to be not as well attended but it sounds like from the experiences that you've had what you're suggesting is don't give up um, that at some point people will people will develop I don't want to say this like looking you know looking down at like consumers of Assyrian music, but at some point they will develop a more sophisticated palette that allows them to sit back and enjoy the music and the lyrics without having to you know dance uh, specifically like in a, in a more in a concert setting. So yeah. it sounds like you're suggesting it takes some persistence on and patience on the side of the artist.
0: But just think about it. A bit. Just think about it logically. Let's look at it logically. If I'm, a, let's say I'm an artist, I, I'm a singer, right? I'm an and I have a, I have a show coming up in in November, for example, or, or September next month, right? For example, I have a show, I have a concert in a thousand seat capacity. And here's a, like a typical conversation that some other people might have under the circumstances. Uh, the guy tells his friend, oh, by the way, uh, so such and such has a concert. You uh, should go see her, uh, see a singer. And the friend says, uh, how much is the ticket? $100. Uh, well, you know what? He's singing at my cousin's wedding uh, in a couple of weeks. I'm just going to go see him over there. Of course, people will not come to see you in the concert and spend $100 and see, sit down and listen to you because they can see you at their cousin's wedding. You see? That's why it doesn't work like that. If you're gonna be great artists, you have to stay and do great work. Don't go back, go forward.
2: I appreciate that um, perspective um, because I think it comes from both your experience but also for your desire to see Assyrian music move forward.
0: Absolutely, I'm very passionate about that. I'm- trying to see our artists to go forward and be able to do major things with major artists to create, as far as their albums, mostly I hear, they're okay. They're good. They're okay. But still, the albums are not, they don't go one better than the last time. Sometimes they're just average, you know, albums, average recording, average songs, you know, you have to, uh, again, when you become a major artist, you have to become very, um, what's the word? you know not to be satisfied and 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 don't be so so easy going with your, your songs and lyrics that anybody that's just handed to you uh, you know look into them, make sure the songs are good songs the lyrics are good they make sense the arrangements are good musicians played well everything has to come together in order to have a good product it's up, you know it's like this for everything and yeah, decide- be a
2: little more picky
0: one other thing that I, I want to bring, out, bring up is that, one thing that when I talk to my artists, Assyrians, and I tell them, you know, spend money on your albums and do this and do that and stuff like that. And they said, you know, some of them, not all of them. They say, you know what? Oh, I should be on La Vo Music. And they don't, they don't pay a lot of attention to that. Listen, I am just sick and tired of hearing that from our artists. Our people know and understand music a lot more than you give them credit for, you know? So do your job. Do a good job. Don't just do a you know, mediocre job just because you have a, this uh, idea in your head that, oh, RSA, and people don't appreciate good music. In that They do. Everybody understands the difference between Toyota and Mercedes. Everybody does. You give them a good project. You give them good product. You give them good uh, concert with good production numbers and this and that. People flock at your concerts, but if you're just going to go there with two keyboards behind you and sing the same things that you were singing at such and such wedding, you're not going to go forward. That's it.
2: Yeah, there is for sure a difference between listening to uh, singers who know how to perform in front of an orchestra and a, for a large crowd than what what you might hear at a picnic or a wedding, which obviously, like you you. I don't think what you're saying is that there's no place for that i think you're you're saying that people who achieve a certain level of greatness should just continue to go forward
0: and to
2: a higher level
0: exactly exactly my point
2: i have to tell you the first concert i ever went to as a teenager because we had just been to the united states for a few years i grew up in a house that loved gugus and so the very first car- concert I went to was a Gugouche concert at Kodak Theater in L.A. And nothing will ever be the same because it was one of the most fantastic experiences, Gugouche singing with her band. And it was awesome. So I, I hope that one day our Assyrian singers get, can get to a place where they're filling up those kinds of stadiums.
0: Me too. Me too. I wish um, that too.
2: Let's talk a little bit about. You said you are, uh, you know, you're you're kind of trying to step away from um, live music and doing recording and recognizing, you know, where you are um, in life at this point. So I would love to talk a little bit about your what the legacy you want to um, leave behind. Not that you're done, um, but. What is it that you want to be remembered by?
0: Oh my goodness. Oh, well, I'm not sure. Maybe just uh, just the fact that by playing on so many of these songs and uh, mm-hmm. consequently people listening to these songs and give them a little bit of enjoyment and that to me means a lot. And a lot of people, I get a lot of comments uh, on whether on Instagram or on other places that people that appreciate my playing on such and such songs. And uh, that to me, it, it, you know, it's, it's ultimate. I mean, I, I, I was able to do something to make some people happy. And that's an ultimate, uh, being a musician to make people happy.
2: If you could only play one song for the rest of your life, could you choose one?
0: Hmm. No, (laughs) no, I have uh, maybe at least, I would say, 20, 30 favorite songs I've done maybe between uh, Persian and Assyrian recordings, I've probably done close to 1000 songs, 900 and some change according to them. But uh, maybe 30 of them are my favorite. I mean, I did a good job on all the rest. But there's some recordings that becomes so perfect and becomes such, such a, it becomes part of you, you know? And and uh, and so those songs are always like, they'll be my, uh, my favorite ones. Uh, and some of them are like a couple from uh, Ogen, there are a couple from Linda, there are some songs from Oshis. I guess I have all kinds of different favorite songs, even Persian songs as well. So uh, maybe 20, 30 of them are my favorite.
2: Yeah, it's like asking you who your favorite child is. You can't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> I just i <wanted> to try. <laughs> right, right. There is one other thing I was going to ask you about, which is um, there is a video on YouTube of Ebby singing an Assyrian song at, a, um, at an event in Turlock. I think it's at Larsa Hall. Yeah. I'm curious how he learned that song. <laughs>
0: Well, he, he loves Assyrians, believe it or not. He does love Assyrians. And so every time we have a show in San Jose or San Francisco, you know, to long was the first time that we played. But we used to go to San Francisco and San Jose. And in the middle of a show, he would always like yell, you know, or stuff like that, or stuff like that. He would just yell at the audience. So he has that thing in him. And then one day he were just sitting around. This was many years ago. And he said, "By the way, I want to I want to learn one of these Assyrian songs." And I thought he was just joking. I said, "Okay, sure, sure, whichever." And then the next next time I saw him, he, he brought this this song. He says, "This is a uh, I believe uh, Aras, even Arasi's song." And I, I want to learn it. He said, "Okay," he said, "just write the lyrics in in kind of Farsi, so I can you know memorize them like that." And again, I thought he was joking and I thought he's not going to go and, and put his time and learn this. So I did half of the page, half of the song. I wrote the uh, lyrics and I gave it to him. And he knew, he said, no, this is not full. You got to write the whole thing. I want to learn the whole thing. Okay. So I wrote the whole thing in Farsi, and I handed it to him and we walked away. You know, we, we ran and did some other things. A few months later, we were at the rehearsal and then he came to me and said, uh, he came to our piano player and said, "I so play that, uh, play a G minor. And he did play the G minor on his piano. And then he started singing his song in exterior. I was just, my jaw was like, <laughs> like on the floor. And I said, How did you learn this? Said, I told you I'm going to learn it, but I want to play it with the band. So we, we prepared that song and he sang it all the way. And when we went to Tola, uh, to that show, we decided to sing it. and. According to people, who heard it, he did the perfect job.
2: He really did because it doesn't sound like someone who doesn't speak Assyrian is singing the song. Like he actually got the um, accents pretty spot on. So I think yes, that's why he would. Yes,
0: yeah, yes, he would ask me, "Hey, how do you pronounce this? How do you pronounce that?" And I would, he would practice, uh, lacha, tama, or you know, whatever the words are. And, and, yeah, he he did try really hard to learn it the best way possible.
2: Your uh, your nephew is also a drummer, and he created a band called Dumata uh, Band. He's
0: a great drummer.
2: In what ways do you think your career inspired him to play the drums?
0: Oh, uh, I don't know if I influenced him, but more like uh, maybe he saw me playing drums around the house. And he would come around and watch me and then slowly, slowly ask me about this and that. And at some point uh, when he became tall enough to be able to reach the pedals, you know, I started teaching him some stuff and he was very enthusiastic about it and would practice. And so that's how he learned. And uh, in his garage, in his house when he was like, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, we used to play together, teach him this and that. But he had a great uh, talent and uh, became a great drummer, worked with a lot of uh, big Persian artists and uh, even uh, he produced a couple of major concerts. A was one of them. I'm sure you heard about it. And and that's actually what I'm talking about. When you can perform, our artists, when you can perform in, in that level uh, as a, a CEO concert, if you can perform in that level, then you can go back and, and sing in a Aciyan Food Festival. You just you have to leave that for other younger generation to come into.
2: I was at that Asiro concert, and um, one of the things I remember is um, he put one, it
0: together. By the way, my nephew put it together.
2: Yeah, I I remember that, and and your nephew is Pierre Nopley. Just so yeah. I mentioned his name. Um, one yeah, of the sorry. things I remember from that concert is um, one of the songs that. Linda Sang she said it's I think it's the called Best and I think it's on an album that you worked with her on but she essentially said people ask me to this to sing this song a song all the time at picnics or weddings but I can't sing it without an orchestra or like without a a full orchestra so um I I don't and I know why because that song just sounds so good And taking away any piece of that orchestra doesn't make it complete. So it doesn't make sense to sing it anywhere but that um, in front of that audience and in front of um, the orchestra itself.
0: There was another reason for that. When uh, Sergio Yonan came to me and he said, you know, let's do an album for Linda George at the time. This was 1984 and I was in Chicago. And... uh, we decided to do an album for her and uh, when we talked about how we're going to approach the production he was telling me that he doesn't want any you know spend as much as you need to to make it a, 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 a most beautiful Assyrian album as far as, as possible okay so but we had the budget we hired a whole bunch of uh, american musicians a couple of asyrian music, musicians as well and rossam beth yonan who is a fantastic arranger, classical uh, player? He did all the string and horn arrangements. I did the rhythm section arrangements. I produced the album uh, altogether. And the idea, the reason I was, uh, my approach was to this album was the way that I didn't want this to be a kind of album that people play it and start dancing with it. So even though a song was a Sheikhani song originally, I didn't play a Sheikhani. I played it different. I played the kind of R&B style because I didn't want people to dance with it. I wanted more people to sit down and listen to these songs. So I played some beats that are not familiar with them purposely so they can more listen to this album rather than just get up and dance with it.
2: Yeah, and that sounds like a great way to train listeners um, for that type of experience.
0: And, and what could be wrong with Linda going on stage uh, with the 25 piece band behind her and playing these songs? It would be beautiful, I think so.
2: I have two more questions for you. One is, based on your experiences, what advice would you give to parents whose children are interested in pursuing music?
0: Please support them. If they have a talent, nurture that, nurture that. Let that talent grow in, in, inside your kid support them whether they want to become a, a painter or, or a musician or you know of course at the same time you have to get your education you have to continue education so just in case if, if you were wrong as far as your your talent in music and you couldn't make it in music at least you have something to fall back onto so always keep on with your education and continue all the way to wherever you can you, can, you know end it but uh, parents, please support your children. And I tell you though, when I was growing up, if you would, we used to go to other Assyrian families' houses, you know, relatives or whoever, you know, this and that. And you hardly ever see any instrument in anybody's house. Nowadays, a lot of Assyrians, I know and I, I hear that they, they support their kids, and there are instruments in the house there's a piano, there's either a violin, or somebody's playing flute. So that is good. We came a long way as far as that is concerned. But even more than that, support your children. If they have a talent in something, support that.
2: And the final question we always ask all of our guests is, we have listeners all over the world. And if there's one thing you could say to all of them, what would it be?
0: Um, just, just get better at your uh, instrument. Don't just... Uh, you know, some of the musicians that I've seen, they learn certain, a certain amount of, uh, they learn certain amount of mo- knowledge and then they stop and they think this is it. I, I'm good at it now. I, I can go and do everything I want. But the music knowledge never ends. Even I am still learning about drums and about music still. So that never learns. Always try to, you know, get your craft, make your craft better, work on your craft, try to do better, do Look around, you know, look around the world now with YouTube and all these uh, availabilities that are out there. There's so much you can do, so much you can, you know, go forward with your talent. And so that's it. Just work on your craft and your, if you're an instrumentalist, work on your instrument. Be good at it. Be fantastic at it. Don't just be, uh, you know, be good at it.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. We wish you a joyful season as you celebrate the holidays, and we hope 2022 is a year filled with health, joy, and bliss for you and your family. We'll be back in March of 2022 with more interviews from around the world. Stay safe, and we'll see you soon.